0: Hello everyone and welcome back to The Bridgehead. My name is Jonathan Van Meren, and today we're going to continue a discussion we've been having on this show now for, for a couple of years and that's a discussion on religious liberty and how Christians respond to religious liberty. For those of you who follow uh, the American Conservative online, for example, I will know that Rod Dreher is a writer who has been writing about these things uh, consistently uh, almost daily in fact he's a senior editor at the American Conservative, Uh, he has written and edited for the New York Post, the Dallas Morning News, National Review which is one of my favorite publications the South Florida Sun Sentinel, the Washington Times and the Baton Rouge Advocate, he's also been published in the Wall Street Journal, the Weekly Standard Uh, he's commented on NPR, ABC News, CNN Fox, MSNBC And the uh, British Broadcasting Corporation as well. And he lives in Baton Rouge currently. Uh, Those of you who have followed a bit of his story through his books will will know that he grew up in St. Francisville, Louisiana. He wrote quite a beautiful book uh, about his family and especially about his sister uh, called The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming. And he continued a book that I read early, or pardon me, late last year. Uh, called How Dante Saved My Life, which is quite a, an incredible book as well. He's a very beautiful writer and a consistent advocate for traditionalism. So he, he very much writes the sorts of things that you, you read in, in First Things. Uh, so Rodriguez's recent book that just came out, which you can order, is the Benedict Option, where he discusses uh, how Christians should deal with a culture increasingly hostile uh, to the Christian worldview, to Christian lifestyle, to Christian beliefs. And when he... started blogging about this. There was a lot of discussion happened surrounding his thesis because there are a lot of Christians, of course, uh, writing about how to deal with the current culture. There are a lot of Christians proposing different solutions. And Rod Dreher's is quite unique. And so I contacted uh, Rod Dreher and he graciously agreed to do an interview. And this is that discussion. So we'll start off, I guess, just by uh, laying out what the Benedict Option means. I've seen a lot of reviews and commentary going back and forth on on what it means. Some people disagree with it before it's articulated. Other people are very attracted to it. So what's the the central thesis of the Benedict Option?
1: The central thesis of the Benedict Option is that we are living in a time of uh, enormous fragmentation in the West, and uh the abandonment of the Christian faith at the center of our culture and society, uh, I get the title from the last paragraph of the philosopher Alistair MacIntyre's book after Virtue, in which uh, he said that we are living in a time like the fall of the Roman Empire in the West, but uh there were people back then he said that uh, quit trying to shore up the imperium his words the the existing order and instead tried to form new ways, uh, new communities in which to live out the faith in this time of darkness and disorder. Uh, and he said, we are waiting for a new and quite different St. Benedict. Well, as many of your readers, uh, your listeners, sorry, will probably know, St. Benedict was the uh, Roman uh, citizen who went down to the city of Rome uh, in the years after the Rome had fallen to the barbarians, to finish his education, he was a pious Christian. was uh, Shocked by what he saw, and left to live in the woods and live in a cave. Actually, pray and fast for three years to seek God's will. When he came out, he became an abbot of a monastery and uh, founded twelve monasteries before he died. And wrote the uh, Rule of Saint Benedict, a thin book that was just a sort of a governing constitution for monasteries. But he achieved over the next three centuries, long after he died was the uh, preservation and the spread of the Christian faith in barbarian Europe, and they ended up laying, the monks laid the groundwork for the rebirth of Christian civilization. So I think the reason McIntyre brings him up in our situation is he believes, and I believe, that we are in an analogous time today where Christians need to turn inward and strengthen our, our connection to our history, strengthen our connection to our doctrine, and of course, above all, to Christ and to Scripture, so we could be resilient to hold out through this long cultural night that's ahead of us. So uh, maybe we can come,
0: come to shore on the other side of this sea and replant the faith in the far future. And so what does this look like in a practical sense? This is the, the thing that most people were waiting with bated breath to find out when the, when the book was released, because the, the philosophy behind it uh, makes a lot of sense. But in, in a practical reality, uh, how does that look?
1: The, this is the, the big question, and I don't have a clear, concise 12-point uh, plan for starting Benedict Option Communities. Uh, Part of it is because I'm writing for all Christians, not just within my Eastern Orthodox tradition or the Catholic tradition or the evangelical tradition. I think the, the way the Benedict Option plays out locally among certain congregations and communities will depend on what they do to remain faithful to their own tradition. Plus, it depends on local conditions. For example, someone who lives in a rural area where the only school is a public school and they don't have resources or or the gifts for homeschooling will have to send their kids to public school and not classical Christian schools, which I think are ideal. Mm -hmm. But that person still has to live out the Benedict option, still has to figure out how to be faithful. So they and their neighbors who are equally committed will work out local forms of community that are suited to their particular circumstances. I, in the book, the Benedict Option, I, uh, I draw on real life examples of Christians, Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox, around the, the country and around uh, around the U.S. and around the world, uh, who are living some form of this and uh, and doing pretty well on it. And I if there's there we can look at it happening in certain places and say, I want to be like that.
0: Well, there seems to be uh, somewhat of a of a conflict. When people discuss this, because on one hand we see churches hemorrhaging young people uh, straight across North America, uh, you know the news that broke uh, earlier this week that George Bush's daughter is headlining a Planned Parenthood fundraiser. I think really pointing the highlights that when we fail to pass on our values, uh, we we see them switch sides. And on the other hand, we want to be a you know, salt and light, and we want to be able to reach out, and we want to be able to, you know, stand up for the marginalized, and especially in the pro-life movement, uh, pro-life leaders spend a lot of time trying to coax people out of the churches into cultural engagement. So how do we square that circle?
1: That is the great question. I I, I want to say up front, because this is the question I get all the time, is that I'm not saying that Christians need to head for the hills and build compounds and wait for the end, or something apocalyptic like that. I I believe that we have to stay politically engaged to the extent that we can, and we certainly have to stay engaged at the local level, in our local communities. Um, Now, having said that, though, we have to ask ourselves, what is Christianity for? If it is for shaping our our hearts and our minds and conforming it to Christ, and there are certain things, ways we have to live and certain ways that we cannot live in order to achieve that. Uh, I think that if you look around today, at the, I'm thinking in particular of the, the sociological research by Professor uh, Christian Smith at Notre Dame. He has found that uh, among North Americans, the, there's so little knowledge of the basics of the Christian faith, especially among millennials. I find this confirmed whenever I go out to Catholic or evangelical colleges and talk to the professors. They say that the young people who come to them, even if they're very sincere in their emotional commitment to Christ, they know almost nothing because they have not been formed. This is to say that we're creating a uh, sort of a Potemkin village of Christianity, which is going to blow over when the counterculture, the cultural winds, start blowing hard enough at them, as is happening in many places today. So uh, I think what we have to do, if we are going to be salt and light for the world, as we have to be, we have the Great Commission, then we have to spend more time away from the world uh, in a sort of uh, cloister where we can deepen our ties to each other, deepen our knowledge of Scripture and, and the tradition, uh, develop certain practices that form our hearts and our minds in particularly Christian ways, and then go out to the world to share with them what we have. The, uh, the Christian historian, Robert Louis who's maybe the greatest living historian of the early church, uh, said in a 2004 essay in First Things that there is nothing more necessary for, the, for Christians in the West today than to tell ourselves our own stories again, because we've forgotten. It's gotten very, very thin, and that's what I'm trying to sound the alarm
0: about. And that's very interesting. To, to extrapolate off of that, I grew up in, in, a, in a quite... Um... Quite closed community in in a rural area, uh, and, and 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 actually a lot of the stuff that you wrote in your book, The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming, uh... resonated with me in terms of its description of what a sort of a, a rural society is like, especially one that does place religion. First and foremost and where I found uh, an interesting contrast is I was I was I had a great religious education. I had parents who were very attentive to ensuring that I learned my catechism. You know, we had church services twice every Sunday. Uh those services were very theologically rich. We were familiarized with different religious books. But when I went to university, I found myself utterly unprepared to debate things I had taken for granted. So, I was ready to defend the you know theological theological points i 'd been raised with and defend the catechism and things like that. but then, on the flip side, uh, I found much, much deeper things being attacked, so the existence of God itself, the inerrancy of scripture, uh, even the value of tradition since most of our universities are are now engaged in iconoclasm so how do you, you square this when you have these communities and, and you can you can really uh... plunge them into a theological depth and you can uh, educate them religiously but some of them are gonna have to go to university and they're gonna have to go to college and they're gonna have to take professions that take them outside of these communities and what do we do in that scenario
1: Wow, that it, that is phenomenal to hear you say that because i i think about my own childhood and where i was longing for greater depth and greater community because everybody was a christian in our town but Ah, uh, Christianity was considered synonymous with being a member of the uh, of the white Southern middle class, right. and therefore it evacuated uh, of any sort of real theological depth or rigor. So I wanted that sort of thing. I hear from when I go out and talk to people who are really anxious about this, I hear from uh, Protestants and also some Catholics who were raised in a very strictly fundamentalist sort of mentality, and they uh, they feel that, the fate for them was presented mostly as a fearful reaction. And so I have to try to process that. I know that's not what you're talking about, but I have to process that in my mind and realize that my experience was not everybody's experience. Um, having said that, I, I believe that the story you tell is indicates that there's no silver bullet. You know, there's no formula that you can... the formulaic way you can raise your kids where everything's going to be okay. What I try to do with my kids to answer your question, is to talk to them all the time about what's going on in the, the world beyond our religious community. Uh, they're being educated at a classical Christian school where they're reading non-Christian authors as well, but um, I, I try to talk to them, and my wife tries to talk to them, about the particular challenges they're going to face when they go to university or go out into the world. Um, I think the best thing we can do is to try to make them resilient on the inside. You can't put a shell on the outside and hope that will protect them, because it's not going to do that. But if we build this resilience inside and uh, and shelter them enough so that their consciences can be formed in a Christian way, but not so much that we cut them off from what's going on in the outside world, then I, I think we do that and hope for the best. But again, there's no formula.
0: Right. Have you received a lot of response uh, from from people, especially in the United States, where the evangelical subcultures are famous, where, you know, they, they sort of take different art forms and they put Christian in front of it. Uh, so, you know, you've got Christian worship music that sounds more or less identical to pop music, and it's nothing like the, the great hymns and psalms and spiritual songs of the past, and how these, these subcultures uh, have have sort of placed a buffer between people and the world, That once they get out into it, they realize that a lot of the Christian culture stuff that they've been taught is actually just a weaker knockoff of what the secular art does, because we're never going to do secular art better than they do. We have to create Christian art, of which there is 2,000 years' worth of magnificent examples. So do you provide a lot of cautionary tales on how not to do a Christian subculture?
1: You know, I did not do that in the Benedict Option because the book had to be short, uh, relatively short. The publisher wanted it that way, but I would like that to be a follow-up book because I myself stayed away from the Christian faith for uh, a while as a young adult. I mean, I lost my faith when I was a teenager, as many teenagers do, but I did not see evangelical subculture as being at all attractive because, as you say, it was just an ersatz version of, of the the, the the mainstream culture, which is, which is much much better in terms of artistic accomplishment, but I think for me uh, this is where I'm really grateful for my Catholic formation as a young adult convert, adult convert, uh, because Catholicism taught me to look more deeply into art and culture and to take what is good from the the non-Christian world, and to see that God can be manifested in a very imperfect way that way, but there's something that we can value in it, because all truth and all beauty is God's truth and God's beauty. Um, and so I I think that we we really vaccinate our kids in a way against taking culture and art seriously if we immerse them in a cheesy Christian subculture that um, just is just a pale imitation of the real thing. We have so much in the history of the Christian Church, going back two thousand years, so much artistic and musical and literary greatness that um, plunge back into the old classics and, and give your kids something real and something truly beautiful and long-lasting, instead of uh, some Christianized version of junky pop culture.
0: And it's interesting because a lot of of your writings are being read by by people who who are younger. So I'm I'm 28, but people uh, of my generation, and I think that uh, of course you know who Phyllis Schlafly was. Her famous book, I think, doesn't only sum up political conservatism, but also sums up what a lot of uh, young Christians are looking for, and that's a choice, not an echo. And what most subcultures are providing right now is an echo. Of, of secular culture, but it's not a real choice. And if you don't have to make a choice, it's easy to just drift away. Have you seen that in the people you interact with?
1: Oh sure, it's absolutely the truth. I was at an evangelical college recently uh, talking about the Benedict Option, and a young woman stood up at the, at the back after the, the speech and said, look, I want to ask you, why do you say that we need to do this Benedict Option thing and take on these prayer disciplines and fasting and so forth? Why isn't it enough just to love Jesus with all our hearts, like I was taught growing up? And I think it was a a good and honest question, uh, and I think it speaks to the the vacancy at the heart of so much North American popular Christianity. We think it's all about emotion. We tend to equate uh, holiness with niceness. So when the broader culture condemns us for being mean about certain things, Christians are so often willing to flip and uh, adjust their faith to fit the common culture. I think that uh, this is, in this way, we're going to see Christianity, we are seeing Christianity slowly leached out of any kind of real content, real doctrinal or historical content. I think that the kind of Christianity that appealed to me, that brought me in as an adult, was not one that made it easy for me to convert, but one that made it hard, because it taught me that there is something real here. There is something life-changing here. There is something that calls me out of myself. It doesn't confirm me in myself. It calls me out of myself, because I, I, that's what Christianity really is. We have forgotten that in, in North American culture, and I think the churches that make it in the future, whether they're Catholic, Protestant, or Orthodox, are going to be those who return to an earlier, more rigorous version of Christianity and ask more people, give them a real choice, not an echo.
0: And uh, back to a bit of the practical sense as well. So there's a wonderful uh, little book written by George Grant, uh... called third time around a history of the pro-life movement from the crucifixion until present and he very compellingly makes the case that one of the main christian missions from you know rescuing children who were abandoned in ancient rome and putting an end to infanticide a uh, basil of caesarea's campaigns against those who, who sold abortifacients and things like that that it's a fundamentally christian mission to rescue those uh... who are or are the victims of a selfish pagan society and of course, we have that very prominently, both in Canada and the United States, with abortion, and of course, in in many instances, infanticide as well. so as as people retreat to a Benedict option, what is their responsibility in regards to uh, reaching out to a culture that's blind to the humanity of the preborn child, blind to the inhumanity of abortion? Uh, who will speak for them? Is there still a place for that kind of of outreach in, in your vision?
1: There has to be, uh, or we're in, or we're failing to be Christian. In the Benedict Option, I talk about this uh, Czech dissident Catholic, a man named Václav Benda, uh, who was part of Václav Havel's inner circle of dissidents against communism. But Benda was the only believer among that, that circle, and... He really disagreed with the position the Czech Catholic bishops took after the persecutions of the 1950s. They reached a sort of agreement with the government where Catholics would just keep to themselves, stay inside their houses, practice their religion quietly, and not make trouble. Benda believed that if we failed to be a witness in the public square, then we were failing as Christians. And so what he tried to do was to teach uh, the faith and to teach resistance, but to do it publicly. You couldn't go out and and protest against uh, politics in in communist Czechoslovakia, but you could do all kinds of smaller things, local things, to create a humane alternative to what was offered in the public square. I think this is what uh, we Christians, pro-life Christians, are going to need to do, no matter how harsh the uh, legislation uh, against uh, the right to life and on euthanasia becomes. It's going to be up to us to take care of these babies through crisis pregnancy centers, adoption services, and so forth. It's going to be up to us to care for the the elderly who have been discarded by their families with the terminally ill and who were being encouraged just to receive euthanasia. This is how the early church did it. They were so much more humane than the culture, the majority culture in which they were living, and people were drawn to that because theirs was a light in the darkness. We have to do nothing less today or we're failing to bear witness to Christ no matter what it costs us.
0: Yes, yeah, so your your Benedict option. One of the things I found very fascinating is it's very dispositionally attractive to to people who are conservative. Uh, there's a reason that the the phrase conservative activist sounds like a contradiction in terms, because conserve just you know means hanging on to what you have, not going out and looking for more. Where as a liberal, you know that's an action word. Uh, Dennis Prager once joked that you've never seen a Democratic activist uh, who had nine kids. And, the, you know, the point was just they don't have time. They're too busy raising their families and forming their children and, you know, paying attention to their marriages to engage in such things. But on the flip side, what we have, at least here in Canada, and I know in certain states in the U.S., is we can't expect to be left alone. The, the number one thing under threat here in Canada is parental rights and education. In several provinces, they've, they started to go after homeschooling. Uh, they they started to make moves against the independent Christian schools, one of which I attended uh, growing up. And so, what happens when political engagement becomes not a choice or a hobby or an activity, but becomes almost you know essential to the survival of the kind of communities that you're advocating?
1: Yeah, that's a great question.
0: And I, I have to reiterate that I'm not saying that we
1: we can afford to be quietists in this matter and just not get engaged politically. In the U.S. and certainly in Canada, our religious liberty and everything that is entailed by that really, really does matter. But what I want to caution the Christians against doing is thinking that conventional politics alone are sufficient. Uh, in the U.S., we've had over the past uh, 30, 40 years religious conservative uh, leaders thinking that if we just voted Republican, and we would get the right judges and the right policies, and everything would take care of itself. In the meantime, they completely ignored what the culture was doing, eroding the foundations of Christian faith, and what the economy was doing, too, by uh, eroding uh, the stable families and stable communities. Uh, So I I just want to say that, yes, we have to be active politically, but to be active politically doesn't simply mean getting involved in legislation and legislative fights. It also means building up local uh, communal institutions and communal practices that will make us resilient, even in such a time as we are persecuted. I mean, look, if if there are homeschooling rights and school, independent school rights are taken away in Canada, that's still going to mean you're still going to have to live as Christians to figure out how to live as Christians. What will you do then? Mm-hmm. Uh, Christians under under communist domination, even in some places in the world today, like Egypt, they still have to be faithful, even under extraordinarily difficult uh, conditions. That's what I'm trying to say to the Church. Uh, and a lot of people hear that as, oh, you're just trying to get, quit dirtying your hands with politics. I'm saying what happens if we lose? Then what? We have got to be prepared for that day.
0: And that's a, a perfect segue into the next question. And I, I've read what you've had to say on this, and, and I'd like you to reiterate it for the listeners. As a lot of people seemed after, you know, eight years of, of Barack Obama's administration and his attacks on religious liberty and his interference in the schools and things like that, then uh, Donald Trump got elected, and for some reason, uh, people seemed to consider him a natural ally. Now, I know that that you know, various commitments on various issues were extorted out of him by, by groups that he, he, he needs to win. But this dangerous apathy, uh, the relief that people felt upon Trump's election was understandable in terms of, okay, it wasn't Hillary Clinton, <clears throat> but the relief, I think, is, is also quite dangerous in terms of people suddenly are no longer in what I call a productive panic, uh, you know, being driven to come up with creative options to you know, train their children and consider options like the one you're putting forward.
1: Absolutely right. I, I was myself surprised that Trump won, not only because nobody predicted that, but also because it, I felt it gave uh, us Christians a, uh, a sort of reprieve for at least four years, maybe eight years, from the ongoing progressive um, uh, stripping away of religious liberty. That said, any Christians in America who believe that Donald Trump, who is married three times, a casino owner, Uh, who has no apparent Christian faith, to think that he is going to be our our white knight who protects us is just ludicrous. I'm grateful for whatever Donald Trump is able to do to shield us or to slow down what's happening, but even if Donald Trump were a saint, he could not stop uh, the deep currents of culture that are taking Western civilization further and further away from its Christian roots. So uh, I tell Christians, do not be complacent. Do not think that just because a Republican is in the White House and Republicans run Congress uh, that the crisis has gone. If anything, this uh, may shield us from the real depths of the crisis such that we are not prepared at all when uh, Trump should turn on us, which he has done to many of his, of his business colleagues in the past, or when Trump gets, ele- gets put out of office.
0: So we have an opportunity we can't, we literally cannot afford to, to lose. Essentially,
1: no, we can't. And, and you know, people say that I'm being really alarmist about this stuff, and I, I am consciously speaking in a more prophetic, alarmist tone in the Benedict option. But it's like the author Blannery O'Connor said, when the world is deaf, you have to shout. I, I've lived long enough now. I'm fifty years old to see how rapid the changes have been even in my own lifetime, culturally and in the, and in the case of the, the changing of religious culture in the United States. And uh, it can't, you can't deny that it is falling apart at a very rapid uh, uh, clip. And if we don't take radical action now, uh, the water will
0: overtake us, and we won't even—the floodwater uh, of secularism will overtake us, and we won't even know what it is. Well, precisely. Flannery O'Connor also said push back as hard as the age that pushes against you, which I think is is what you're trying to offer some remedy for. Mm -hmm. For the listeners who are saying, okay, I live in a city. Uh, in practical terms, uh, as you mentioned, it looks different for everybody. But let's say they live in, 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 a, in, a, in a large metropolitan city. Um, they don't have a, a, a sense of church community. How do they start going, uh, going about creating this Benedict option for them and their families? I remember you had a discussion uh, with Eric Metaxas that sort of um, after the book The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming came out, in which you sort of touched on this discussion when you were talking about building community and <clears throat> returning to roots and preserving tradition. And uh, Eric had asked you, okay, so well, what do I do? I live in New York City. So how would you respond to those people?
1: I think the Benedict Option may, in
0: fact, be easier
1: in some cities than in and rural areas. Uh, in the past year, my wife and I have moved with our kids into the city of Baton Rouge, which is 30 miles away from my hometown of St. Francisville, precisely for Benedict Option reasons. We had in St. Francisville a small uh, Eastern Orthodox mission that we we helped found and worshiped at, and we homeschooled. But uh, when our mission closed down, uh, when uh, one family left and we could no longer uh, pay the priest, uh, my wife and I realized that we cannot live without... Uh, being able to go to church in the middle of the week to vespers services, to prayer services, we needed to be part of a congregation, and we could not do that living so far away because that, the, the nearest Orthodox church after that was in Baton Rouge, a 40-minute, a 40-minute drive. Plus, our kids were going, uh, starting a, uh, studying at a classical Christian school, which also was in Baton Rouge, and this would have meant uh, 90 minutes a day, five days a week, on the road to the city. So uh, we said this is not worth it. We ended up moving into the city precisely so we could participate in this educational uh, Christian community and be a lot closer to our actual parish. And I think this can happen in any big city where you have it might even be easier also because you have a greater concentration of Christians who agree with you, who see the world the same way you do. Um and you're not Quite as um, much a weirdo, an apocalyptic-sounding weirdo, uh, out there among the mm-hmm. congregation at a smaller place.
0: Well, it's in Mary Abertstadt's book. Uh, it, it isn't easy to believe. She, she starts off by discussing how many Christians are speaking in precisely the sorts of terms that you are. I've had trouble conveying to my secular friends the sorts of discussions that take place in Christian communities like Will are school be shut down? Is the government going to permit us to, to teach to children uh, sexuality from the Christian perspective? Uh, what are we going to do if we can't do that? They, they simply don't understand uh, the level of concern, and yeah, existential concern in the Christian community. So I guess uh, to wrap up, what's the final message that you would give to all those Christians who are sharing your concerns and don't think you sound apocalyptic, because the sorts of things that you're saying are the antidote to the concerns that they've been raising?
1: Right. I I say, read my book and find each other. Have these hard conversations uh, that uh, will hopefully lead to some sort of concrete actions to uh, build a local community, whether it's within your own church or across denominational lines, as we found in our Christian school. Because things are moving very, very quickly. Certainly, you in Canada are a lot further along this line than, than we are in the U.S., but it's all going the same way. We have got to do it right now, come together, uh, study our traditions more deeply, adopt certain practices and ways of life. I think the best thing parents can do is get tablets and smartphones out of the hands of their kids. We see this in our Christian school where all the work of formation we do in the school gets taken away when the kids go home and the parents give them smartphones through which pornography and everything else can stream. But we have to start taking action now to my readers. We don't have time to dawdle. We don't have time to sit still and hope that things will get better. They're not going to get better, but there is reason to hope if we trust in the Lord and we act.
0: Well, Rod, thank you so much for taking the time.
1: It's my pleasure.